Welcome to Addiction and the Family, Episode 23, A Conversation with Counselor Merritt Hartblay. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addictions affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction has spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction in the Family, a podcast by and for family members of anyone with an addiction. My name is Casey Arriaga, and I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Centers, and I'm the author of Realistic Hope, the family survival guide for facing alcoholism and other addictions. And I'm Kira Arriaga, addiction counselor intern and recovery coach at Windmill. Casey and I were in our addictions together for over 10 years and have now been in recovery together for almost twice that long. I've led hundreds of family workshops, but just as important is that Kira and I have lived the experience of being family to addiction as both children and adults. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. In this episode, we kick off with a new feature in our show, Conversations with Counselors, in which we bring in the voices of other counselors who work with individuals and families affected by addiction. Today, we're going to hear from Merritt Hartblay, who is a social worker and addiction counselor in New York. Merritt has his own podcast, Recovery Road, and is the author of the book, Lost Innocence, My Journey from Addiction to Recovery. He and Casey spoke recently and covered a wide range of topics, from the kinds of things they've seen most help families deal with addiction to their personal experiences of how recovery has brought healing to their relationships with the people closest to them. All this after a word from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. Welcome back. Here's Casey's conversation with Merritt Hartblay. Merritt, welcome to the show. Would you introduce yourself to our audience and let us know what are you doing on a podcast called Addiction and the Family? Wow. Let's see. My name is Merritt Hartblay. I'm a social worker and a chemical dependency counselor. And on the flip side, I just celebrated 13 years of sobriety. So uh, I've been on both sides of the show, so to speak. I'm very proud of that. It started out, I guess, I reached a point in my life where I was working in corporate America. I was working for a big company that crashed and burned. I lost everything and kind of hit my knees and, you know, drinking got really bad. Basically, I decided that, you know, uh, what am I going to do with my life? And I kind of just did some praying, you know, praying and meditation and the answers came. What happened was my son was, uh, he was captain of the high school football team. And he came to me and he said, Dad, uh, the guys on the team don't take drugs and alcohol seriously. Can you come into the school and talk to them? 
and I was newly sober. And uh, I said, Trevor, you know, uh, if I come into the school, these kids are going to know me because I coached baseball for a long time in that town. But I did. I went into the high school and uh, talked to the kids. And uh, the stories that came back from these kids were pretty sad. You know, I've been smoking pot since I'm 10. I've been drinking since I'm 12. I think my mom's an alcoholic. And I decided to do something more. So I decided that I really wanted to go to school to become a drug counselor so that I could help people. And I did. You know, at that time, New York State considered alcohol and drugs to be a disability. I got a full scholarship to go to school to become a drug counselor. And uh, I did that. It was an accelerated program, 11 months of intensive education. I was also interning at the time at a couple of outpatient facilities in Long Island and uh, graduated from that. And I loved the work. You know, I realized then, Casey, we're not going to get religious, but it was about a spiritual thing for me that, you know, my whole life I had always had those foxhole prayers to God, you know, oh, please, God, help me out of this, help me out of that, you know, and I'll do the right thing. And then, of course, things would work out okay, but then the next day I'd go back to being a jerk all over again. And it was the first time in my life that I actually said, okay, it's not what God can do for me, but what can I do for you? And I really just turned it over and I said, you know what, just point me in the right direction. So I graduated from that school and uh, I got two part-time jobs working as a, a drug counselor at two outpatient facilities. and. Then one became a full-time job, which I did for about two years. And then uh, another voice inside of me said, uh, you have to do more. I wanted to eventually become a therapist and I had to get a higher education. So at 59 years old, I went back, I applied and went back to my alma mater, uh, SUNY Binghamton, a state university school here in New York, and uh, applied to their grad school and got accepted and went and got into a master's in social work program. It was a three and a half year program part-time, two nights a week, going to school, working full-time at a drug facility in Binghamton and did that for three and a half years. Graduated with honors, loved the work. You know, I, I did a lot of good work. I was working in a trauma hospital, working in a high school, got all the work I needed to get done, came back to Long Island. And I've been back here now about five years. I'm working at the outpatient facility where I first started at before I went to school. And I have a small little practice that I work with, with uh, families and people on the side. And, uh, yeah, grateful to be doing it. And a lot of the work that I do is family work. You know, as you and I have discussed in the past, um, that's one of the biggest challenges is that, you know, you're working with an addict who's trying to get clean and sober from whatever drug it is. And they go into inpatient and then they go to outpatient and they start the process. They go to AA or NA, whatever 12-step program they're involved in. But the family, you know, addiction is a family disease and everybody in the family becomes addicted to the addict. So just like the addict is getting help, so the family has to do that as well. So I love doing family work because, you know, when you work with a family who's willing to do the work, you see miracles happen, families change. Yeah, so, you know, I've, I've been doing that now, you know, since I got back, I you know, here in Long Island. And, and uh, you know, Casey, I decided that I really wanted to do more. I had been writing a book for about five years. I finally got it published and it came out uh, a year ago in August, it became a number one bestseller on Amazon. And that book, it's called Lost Innocence, My Journey from Addiction to Recovery. It told my whole story. And then, uh, as you know, I wanted to take it a little bit more. And I met with my publisher, who was also my producer, Jess Brannis, and started a podcast in February called Recovery Road, which you were on several months ago. So that's where I'm at. You know, I love doing the work. I, I think something which I wanted to get into was, um, I don't know if how much you're aware of this whole fentanyl crisis that's going on in this country, but uh, you know, hundreds of people are dying every day. And I kind of got involved and I had a couple of moms on my podcast about six months ago. These two women, uh, Kathy Lawley and Diane Urban, they had started a group called Appalled Association of People Against Lethal Drugs. 
because both of them had lost their kids to fentanyl uh, murder. Because like, we do call it fentanyl murder because it's not an overdose. I mean, every drug out there now is being laced with fentanyl. And, and after that, I put it out on social media that I was going to dedicate my podcast for months moving forward, maybe toward the end of the year, so that moms and parents could come on and tell their story. And each week, I've had a couple of fill-ins in between, but for the last six months, that's what I've been doing. I've been having moms and uh, family members come on Recovery Road and tell their story. And or August 28th, I guess, was I spoke. We had a huge rally down in Washington, D.C., outside the Chinese embassy, and about 300 families were there. It's a sad story, Casey, because, you know, uh, not to get into the politics, you know, fentanyl, we know it's being manufactured through hundreds of factories in China. They're working with the Mexican cartels to bring it through Mexico and to the U.S. So we've got a lot of work to do, but I'm grateful to be doing the work. You know, my life now is all about what can I do to help a struggling addict or a struggling family member try to find some peace of mind. Well, thanks for sharing all that. We got into a number of topics there. And you talked about addiction as a family disease. Yeah. If you don't mind my asking, was it a family disease in your family? It was. You know, uh, both of my parents were big drinkers. They were alcoholics. You know, amazing that Jewish people drink. But, you know, my aunts and uncles all drank. You know, as a kid growing up, um, I was kind of aware of it. But as I got older, I started to see that my parents, they both drank to kind of like self-medicate to get through the day you know dad would come home from work and have three or four drinks and you know the same with my mom and then i realized that drinking was a part of their routine there were pretty some scary moments there you know my father used to love to drive fast and you know we'd come back from visiting the one half of the family in brooklyn and he'd be you know doing 90 miles an hour on the parkway and uh me and my sister i talk about in the book we used to huddle down in the back seat of the car you know scared about getting home so yes Addiction ran in my family, but at the time, they didn't think that they were alcoholics. They didn't think that they had a problem. I think they believed that they were just having fun, you know, drinking and having fun. But as I got older, I started to see that my parents were really both drinking to kind of just make it through the day, you know. And because of that, I learned probably unhealthy coping skills on how to deal with life. You know, I began to believe that, well, I guess when things get tough, you drink, you know? But I was very fortunate because I broke away. I got a track scholarship to college and uh, I broke away and my track coach, who's still a very dear friend of mine today, a mentor of mine, took me under his wing. So I didn't really start drinking. I didn't think I had my first drink until maybe junior, senior year of college, you know? And that's when things started going a little bit south for me, you know, where I graduated and came back to New York City and it was the 70s and it was crazy time. So yes, to answer your question, as I look back now, yes, there was uh, addiction running through the family. Thank you. And another way we talk about addiction as a family disease is by saying how all the other members are affected by it, whether they get directly into chemical use or some other addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we recognize it's a family disease where one person, it's alcohol, another person might be pills, another person might be gambling, shopping, food, sex, whatever. Sure, whatever. If we look at that, we can often see it even further into the family tree, but also the people who aren't addicted in the family, how they get affected. Do you mind speaking to that? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. One of the tools that I use, it's, it's called a genogram. I kind of got into that when I was in social work school. And if you sit down with a family and really lay out, it's kind of like a detailed family tree. You know, the husband and wife and the kids and the 
sisters and brothers and aunts and uncles and grandparents. And if you put little liner notes next to each one of those people, you can see where the addiction came from. You can see where the mental health issues came from. So you might have somebody who doesn't have a drug problem or an alcohol problem or mental health issues, but clearly they become affected by the members of the family that are addicted. So in that way, they really do become addicted to the addict. You know, and they and then a lot of codependency exists because they're focusing all their time on trying to save this person, you know, trying to help this person. And by putting all the focus on the addict, they're losing touch with themselves. There's a guy, John Bradshaw, who's done he did he passed away, did amazing work on family work. And he would talk about if you remember when little kids would make those little mobiles you would hang from the ceiling, and if one piece spins, all the pieces spin. Well, that's what happens in an addictive family. The addict is spinning and the entire family is spinning out of control and people, members of the family take on roles. If the mother is the addict, that the younger daughter might wind up playing the role of the mother or the wife to the father. You know, so a lot of times kids wind up having to grow up much faster than they had hoped to. I mean, so it can be a mess, but I think that if the family, and these days I think it's a lot different now, families are, are beginning to see that, you know, drug addiction, you know, it's not just bad behavior. It's a disease like anything else, like lupus or cancer or diabetes, and there's treatment plans for it. When the families begin to understand that, you know, I had a mom, I'll never forget this a couple of years ago, her son was a, a huge heroin addict. She said to me, why can't he just stop? You know, why can't he just stop? And I said, mom, it's not about self-will. And I said to her, let me ask you a question. How did your self-will work the last time you had diarrhea? It didn't work, did it? So it's like, you can't stop it. It's just a disease. So, you know, it, it takes a lot of work, you know, and I know that you do family stuff. And I, and I think that the beauty is when you get a family who's willing individually to do their own work and as a family to come together, I find that for the first time, the family begins to really live, begins to really appreciate each other instead of like kind of isolating in their own little cocoons, you know? Yeah. One of the joys of what I do is getting to work with families every week and seeing that transformation. Yeah. I do a weekly family workshop at Windmill Wellness Ranch and we have families that are coming back each week. And what's even cooler is that we get to invite some of our alumni. So we have people who have come through our program and then we have family members of people who came through the program. So, you wow. know, when a family is showing up for the first week, they're like, what's this family workshop? Like, we've never done this. And often, like you said, they're focused on the idea what can we do to save our loved one? What do I need to do to support them? Right. But then you've got somebody else showing up saying, well, when my kid came through this program a year ago or a year and a half ago, or when I went through the program two years ago, they can give a whole different perspective. And that perspective keeps coming back down to you need to work on your own recovery. And that's why, you know, um, if you go back to the history of AA, you know, when Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob started AA, what would happen is they would bring these husbands, you know, these guys to the house for meetings and all the wives would sit in the kitchen and talk. And then Lois Wilson realized they needed help too. And, you know, Lois Wilson was the one that started Al-Anon and she started Al-Anon so that the, the housewives could begin to realize that they were powerless over their husband's addiction, but they needed to heal themselves. In fact, you know, when I work, I just, I'm working now actually with a, with a family. It's an amazing story, Casey. So you've got 
the father who's the alcoholic, okay? So the mother is, you know, having her own issues. The 17-year-old son is going through his own issues. But as I started to work with them, the beautiful thing was now they go to a church in their town. Or let's say it's a Tuesday night. The father goes to the AA meeting. The mother goes upstairs to the Al-Anon meeting. And the son goes downstairs to the Alateen meeting. So each one of them, actually the mom now and the son, both have sponsors. And they're both doing step work, just like the father who's in AA. That is great to hear. You know, people started finding that freedom early on, and they still say that in Al-Anon, that you can feel better, you can find serenity, and even happiness, whether the alcoholic stops drinking or not. Yes. Whether the person with the problem, the identified patient in the family. And I'll take a moment and shamelessly put in a plug that I write about this in my new book that just came out. Oh, tell me about it. What's, yeah, tell me about the book. What's well, called Realistic Hope. Wow. The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions. Nice, nice. And so one of the things I wanted to do in the book is write just sort of a hands-on how-to, here's what happens in the brain, here's why we consider it a disease, right. here's what treatment looks like, here's what happens after treatment, different levels, all that kind of stuff. And then talk about things like codependency and enabling and boundaries and all that, you know, hands-on information that you can use as a family member. Sure. I kind of wanted to write the book that I wish someone had handed me when I was 16. Yeah. When my dad was drinking and I'd gotten into sex and love addiction, but I hadn't tried alcohol yet. I was like, right. oh, my dad does that, so I'm not going to do that. Sure. Well, later that changed, of course, very suddenly. But So in the book, one of the things that I'm trying to get across, the overriding theme is family members need their own recovery. They do. But really looking and saying, why do you need your own recovery? And trying to lay out an argument because I don't know about you, I'm sure you do. I run into a lot of families that will come in and basically say, well, I'm not the one with the problem. Sure, they point fingers at. Yeah, and so we talk about that identified patient model and how to move away from it. I'm sure you see that too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I've always said that I think I wouldn't call it AA, I would call it People's Anonymous because, you know, Case, if you take the alcohol and the drugs out of the picture, everybody out there is addicted to something, like you said earlier. It could be food, it could be shopping, it could be sex, it could be a lot of different things. So what happens is just because, let's say it's my wife that's the alcoholic, just because I don't have an alcohol problem doesn't mean I don't have an addiction issue, you know? So when the identifying person now goes into treatment, now I've got to, you know, take a look at myself. I just can't sit back and wait for her to get better. And I found that, you know, it can either go one of two ways. You know, I had a husband a couple of years ago. He had been drinking for 25 years, you know, a functioning alcoholic. You know, the wife, her job is raising the three kids, you know, paying all the bills, buying all the clothes, taking care of the family, you know, and he's just out there working, you know, and she's taking the paycheck, right? Well, he hits rock bottom and he goes into 28 days of inpatient, goes to outpatient, and he's slowly starting, you know, the cobwebs are starting to clear, the vision's starting to get clearer, he's going to AA, he's got a sponsor, and he, now he comes home and it's like, hey honey, where's the checkbook? And now the wife is like, I'm busted because she was like the martyr, you know? She was taking care of the family. Actually, she'd rather have the alcoholic husband that she can control. Now the husband comes home and he looks at her and he goes, who are you? And she's looking at him like, who are you? Because he's been, he's been drunk for 25 years and she's been taking care of everything. And now he's like looking at things and being responsible. It's like, 
so that can go one of two ways. Either they both go into family therapy together and, you know, she goes to Al-Anon and tries to make things happen. Or a lot of times they wind up separating because they realize they didn't really know each other. They knew each other through rose colored glasses, right? Now the one gets sober. It's like, oh my God, who is this person? <laughs> you know, that's something I try and warn both my clients who are addicted and their families about. Whenever someone in the family changes, everyone else in the family is gonna get nervous. Sure. Even when it's the change they've been begging for, like, please stop this behavior. Oh yeah. The person stops the behavior and no one else is sure what to do. And now, oh my God, what do I do? Yeah, I joke with my clients that the people around you may still offer you like the crazy card, like you're the crazy one in the family, because if you don't take it anymore, then they're left holding it. Like now what, now what do we do? <laughs> I don't know what to do. Now what do I do? Yeah. One of the stories I've heard about Lois Wilson, co-founder of Al-Anon and wife of Bill Wilson, who is one of the co-founders of AA, is that she and some of the other wives of the early AA members became concerned. They said like, our husbands are growing. They're growing spiritually, they're growing as people. We don't want to get left behind. Right, right. And you know, it's funny, and I've had some moms or wives that have gone into Al-Anon, but then as the husband is going through AA, the wife realizes I've got a drinking problem too, that I've been drinking to kind of self-medicate so I could take care of my drunk husband. And now the drunk husband's not, he's now in recovery and the wife is like, I just realized that I've been self-medicating to watch over him for the last 10 years and take care of the family, right? So it's very interesting how that whole dynamic shapes up. Absolutely. Now, if you don't mind talking about this some more, you mentioned your own teenage son and how he approached you when you were in early recovery. How has that whole dynamic changed over the course of your recovery? Wow. You know, I talk a lot about that in the book. So, you know, when I first got sober, it was 2008. You know, Trevor was 15 and uh, my marriage to his mom at that time had pretty much been over. You know, it was just, you know, it was a mess. I had slept, I was sleeping on the couch for about a year and it was just a horrible situation. And I realized that, you know, when I finally hit my knees and I got to get sober, that I really had to move out of the house and I had to get healthy and get sober so I could be a good sober father. And I went up to Trevor's room. He was 15 years old and I said, Trevor, um, your dad's got some drug and alcohol problems and I have to get help. So I'm gonna be moving out. And so initially he was like very upset, very angry. Like he had been abandoned. So I was going to like four or five AE meetings a day and I learned about acceptance. So what I did, Casey, was for uh, six months, I sent Trevor a text every day. Uh, Trevor, I'm your dad. I love you. I'll always be there for you and just let it go. You know, because I could have been a dad like, how come you're not calling me back? You know, I didn't want to push him farther away. So I just learned to let it go. And six months later, I was walking into a meeting and my phone went off and it was a text from Trevor saying, hey, dad, what do you want to do tomorrow? And it was Father's Day. And we are now the best of friends. He has all of my coins, all 13 of my coins, come to all of my anniversaries. When I went back to Binghamton to get my master's, he was a sophomore there. So we spent two years kind of in college together. You know, we didn't see each other a lot, but we spent some good quality time together. You know, he was an economics major for three years. And I, I think he was around me at that point, knew the work that I was doing. And he said, you know, I don't want to be an economics major anymore. I want to, I think I want to get into psychology because I think I want to be able to help people someday. And he switched majors. He's got a beautiful wife. They've been married for two years. He's an amazing kid, I'm a young man now. And I think that he gave me the time to heal our relationship. 
And now he is absolutely 100% my closest friend, you know, and we have the best times together. I love his wife, um, me and his, uh, his mom, my ex-wife, you know, we become the best of friends. So I think, you know what, in time, listen, I learned that, you know, my whole life I tried to change people, Casey, tried to change my son, tried to change my ex-wife. I've learned that you can't change anybody ever. The only person you can change is you. But once you really start to change indirectly, people around you change. So to answer your question, it was a challenge for a while. You know, even in sobriety, I made some mistakes, but I didn't pick up a drink and I was growing. And, and you know, so uh, 13 years later, one day at a time, we have an amazing relationship. And so I'm beginning, you know, I can't look backwards for all those times that, I mean, I was there as a dad, but I was there, but I wasn't really present. I kind of was there, but I wasn't really being the dad that I should have been, you know? So I put on the role and I know that Trevor, you know, kids are very intuitive. They know what's going on. You know, I learned about forgiveness and I think Trevor did too. So, you know, he forgave me and I forgave myself and uh, it's a beautiful thing today. Well, that is really beautiful to hear. Yeah. I'm reminded if I may share some of my own story. Sure. Yeah, please. Well, I grew up around my dad drinking and I told myself, I'm not going to do that. But I was getting caught up in my own addiction to sex and love, as I shared earlier. Right. Then I did get into drinking and then I got sober in sex and love addiction. And then I figured out I needed to stop drinking. But along the way there, my mom and I had stopped talking. Mm. My dad and I had a very tense relationship, partly as a result. And amazingly out of that whole dynamic i was the identified patient so i was the one hearing if you would just shape up we'd all be okay so we stopped talking for several years for various reasons it wasn't just my addiction but that certainly contributed because of my inability to show up emotionally for the family sure and so when my dad was dying i got to see my mom for the first time in years and it was clear that we both wanted to have some kind of relationship so i started calling her right this reminds me of what you were saying in your story I was the one calling her, and at the end of each phone call, I would say, Mom, I love you. And here I was, a guy, brand new in recovery, and I'm thinking, this is what I'm supposed to do to, to show up in a new way in the family. For a while, she couldn't even say anything back. Right. And then, I don't know exactly how long, so I'm to say ballpark, maybe six months, she says, you too, hon. And I got off the phone, I turned to my wife, and I said, my, my mom just said, you too, it's so cool, check this out. Yeah, yeah. And then one day she was able to say, I love you. And then later it got to the point where she could say it first. And we have this beautiful relationship now to where, you know, I write to her because now it's getting harder for her to talk on the phone. So we just write cards back and forth. Uh, but I know I'm going to fly out there and see her for the holidays and she'll be thrilled to see me. Nice. And this illustrates for me where we get to go in recovery from not talking, don't darken my doorstep to when do I see you again? It's an amazing transformation. Yeah, you know, it really is, you know, for my 13th year anniversary, I decided to buy myself a present and Trevor and I are huge, huge baseball fans. So I surprised him and I bought uh, season's tickets for the Mets. And so we went to a game and I told him about it. And, you know, we go to baseball games and we share so much together. And I think about when he was little and we had season's tickets a lifetime ago at Shea Stadium, you know. I was drinking all the time, Casey. You know, I was like, I couldn't even sit in my seat to watch a whole game, right? Now it's like we go to a ball game and we don't even leave our seats for nine innings, you know, except maybe to go to the bathroom. So I think that, you know, for me, I'm grateful because at the end of the day, Casey, all we have is family. As a kid growing up, you know, I used to blame my parents. It's my father's fault. It's my mother's fault. But, you know, I learned in recovery that we can't blame our parents for anything. 
our parents were doing the best they could, whatever tools they had, whatever kind of life they were going through. So through the process, you know, I had to learn. I did forgive my mom, forgive my dad. You know, unfortunately, my dad passed away and I wasn't sober. You know, so when he passed away, it was like, poor me. Look at what happened to poor me when I should have been there for the family. When my mom passed away, it was a very different story. You know, I was a social worker. I was there for her in the hospital. I was talking to the social workers. So I was there for her. And I realized that so many people waste a lifetime living with resentments and guilt and anger. And then sometimes it's too late, right, Casey? It's too late. Yeah. You know? Well, one of the beauties in doing the work that we do yeah. is being able to help some families avert that tragedy or get back the time that they can. Yeah. You know what I love doing? I love doing interventions. I've done a bunch of interventions with families, and I'll tell you, that's really something special. You know, you meet with a family ahead of time. I, I, this one family, you know, was like uh, three sisters, uh, four brothers, the mother and the father. It was the, uh, the identified patient was the uh, middle brother who was a full-blown alcoholic. And I, I met with the family and talked about the process, you know, talked about what the options were. You know, there's inpatient facilities where this brother could go. And, you know, you have to get the family to a place where, you know, they've had it, you know, they don't know what to do anymore. And you get them to a place where they're going to, you know, once we do the intervention and they bring the identified family member together, you know, each family member writes a letter and says to this family member, you know, I love you. I care about you. But if you don't do this, if you don't do this, if you don't go inpatient and get the help that you need, then I'll never see you again. You're never welcome in my house again. You know, we're going to cut all ties with you. Most of the times it works, but sometimes the, you know, the addict is always said, you know what, F you, what the hell are you all talking about? I'm out of here, you know, but I love doing interventions. So I love working with families. You take a family who's like been split into pieces and they don't know what to do. But if you can come together with them and explain to them about the disease of addiction and explain to them how they've all been affected. And if the family embraces it, and if the identified patient embraces it, wow. I've seen family members come together. The life they have after this happened was so much better than maybe 20 years that they had before. You know what I mean? Absolutely. You talk about writing those intervention letters, and I wonder if you were able to go back in time and write a letter to younger Merritt, what would you tell him? Oh, I would tell him, don't be ashamed to be who you are. Don't let people tell you what you can or cannot be. You know, stick up for yourself and tell people how you feel. Because I think that, you know, uh, yeah, that's what I would probably do. And I would say, uh, don't be ashamed of yourself. If you have dreams, go after them. And the only person that can stop you from accomplishing those dreams is you, not anybody else. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned becoming a lot of different things. You're an author now. You've got your book out. Yeah. And this is a podcast for anyone dealing with addiction, but especially for family members. Mm -hmm. So if a family member out there listening right now picks up your book, what do you hope they'll take away from it? I think what they would take away from it is that so many people live most of their life based on other people's expectations for them. You know, they live their life the way other people want them to live. And I think what comes out of this book was that I finally got to a place where I realized that, you know, you don't have to live your life that way. 
You don't have to live your life based on other people's expectations. That's a horrible place to be. That if you really start to look in the mirror and say, I love myself just the way I am, which most people can't do, but if you can do that, I think what they take away from the book is that all things are possible when you have faith and you learn to love yourself truly before you can really love anybody else. Listen, I, I showed it, Casey, you know, I got sober at 54 years old, you know, and uh, went back to grad school at 59. So I think what, I, what the book tells people is that you can rise from the ashes and completely deconstruct and reconstruct yourself as long as you have faith. Again, it's not about religion. As long as you have faith in God or whatever you believe in, then nothing can stop you. Well, I know a lot of family members might hear that and say, I hope my loved one who has an addiction will hear that message and lift themselves up. But if you were going to tell a family member how they can apply your message for themselves, what would you say? Yeah, I would tell a family member that they have to stop and ask themselves, how much more am I willing to sacrifice if my husband or my son, if they're not willing to get better? I've realized that I've sacrificed a big part of my life to help my son or my daughter or my husband my wife and i've lost my own identity and i would tell them that you have to take a look at that and decide do you want to continue to go down that road you know and be miserable for the rest of your life or do you want to just stand up and say you know what enough is enough if you want to go on down that rabbit hole i'm not going down that rabbit hole with you anymore i'm going to get the help that i need so that i can find the mental health and the peace of mind that i need so that i can live my life enjoy it be happy perfect message i love that yeah, man. Thank you. <laughs> Anything else you want to say to family members before we close up? Yeah, I would say that family members should really understand that if somebody is struggling with a drug addiction or mental health issues, that they shouldn't be shunned or turned away from. They need to be able to educate themselves on the disease, whatever that disease is, if it's addiction, and understand that. Would you throw in that? Would you throw a kid out of the house if they had lupus or diabetes and weren't taking their insulin? I would embrace families to really take a look at what's going on, get the help that's needed. The problem, Casey, is that the stigma in this country is so huge regarding mental health and substance abuse. And I would tell family members, F the stigma, ask for help. Everybody should have a therapist. You know, I've had the same therapist for 13 years. I think even as counselors, as you know, that we need to be able to process our own stuff. So I would tell families, instead of living unhappy, instead of living miserable, get the help that the family needs. Because if you do that, the families can really heal and you can have some amazing years ahead of you. So true. I've said to a lot of people, the kind of miracles that can happen within families when multiple people yeah. reach for recovery at the same time. Amazing. It's unbelievable. It is, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Absolutely. Yeah, man. <laughs> well, Merritt, tell our audience where they can find you. Find your work, your podcast, your book. Where do they look? Oh, uh, yeah. So you can, uh, you can find my book, Lost Innocence, My Journey from Addiction to Recovery on Amazon.com in both Kindle and paperback versions. And in about two weeks time, the audiobook will be coming out. You can find the podcast Recovery Road on all podcast platforms. Um, also on BrannisEnterprises.com backslash Be The Voice Podcast Network. You can find all my uh, podcasts there. And uh, yeah, and I'm on all social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, if anybody needs uh, encouragement or wants to reach out, feel free to reach out to me at any time. I'd be more than happy to chat. Well, Merritt, it's been fantastic to get to talk again. Thanks so much for coming out to do this. 
Yeah, Casey, I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. And that's Casey's conversation with counselor and social worker Merritt Hartblay. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction to the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictionandthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey.